listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church in Fairfax, Virginia. We hope that this is an encouragement to you no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. If you're not already, we would encourage you to connect to your local church. If you'd like to find out more about Sojourn in particular, please visit our website at sojournfairfax.com. May God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of his word. If you want to open your Bibles to Romans 12, we'll be reading 1 through 8. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, that one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, good morning. It's good to gather with you this morning. Uh, My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And if I haven't had the chance to meet you, we'd love to be able to meet you after our gathering today. I'm excited to dive into Romans 12 with you this morning. Uh, just looking in God's Word, studying it this week is just so refreshing, and I hope it always is refreshing to you as well. Uh, but I'm excited to see how, what God wants to speak to us, to say to us as a community today. But before we do that, let's just ask Him to bless this time. So would you pray with me? <clears throat> oh God, we, we praise You this morning. We praise Your name. We praise who You are. We praise You for Your steadfast love and faithfulness that endures forever. And God, we pray this morning that even now in this moment, that we would see this as a gift of grace, that we've been able to come gather with, with one another before you. And I pray, God, that as we do that, that you'd allow us, even right now, to take refuge in you, to rest in you. God, we thank you that you've blessed us with this community of people, with this church, that we have the freedom to be here today. And so, God, I pray now that you would help us by your Spirit to heed your life-giving word to us this morning. God, use your word to strengthen us. Use your word to help us to be disciples who make disciples for your glory and for our good and the good of others. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, in uh, in modern history, there's been a lot of uh, famous or or somewhat well-known solo endeavors that people have taken, things that people have done on their own, these kind of feats accomplished by one devoted individual. Maybe some of you have recently seen the documentary Free Solo. Where, where there's the, the documentary of Alex Honnold's attempt to free climb El Capitan, 3,200 feet of sheer granite that he climbs up with no rope, no support, just his hands and feet and a lot of muscle. Or there's the first solo flight across the Atlantic Ocean by Charles Lindbergh in 1927, or Wiley Post for the first time in 1933 was the first person to fly around the world by himself. This week I was looking up different solo swimming feats that some people have swam across the English Channel in open water, which is a 21-mile swim. Well, the crazier one that I found out about is one that's in Hawaii, the Kaiwi Channel. 
It's 28.5 miles open swim in the Pacific Ocean. And if you've been to Hawaii before, it's very windy there. And so the waves are kicking up, sharks all around, people swimming by themselves across 28.5 miles. I mean, all those things are pretty crazy in and of themselves, but to think about somebody doing that alone, like just totally by themselves, is pretty insane. Well, two weeks ago, we began a, a short but very important sermon series in the life of our church called Discipling. And we're spending five weeks talking about what it looks like for us as a church to be disciples who make disciples, that we would be consistently focused on following Jesus in our own life, which is what it means to be a disciple, looking more and more like Christ, and that we'd help others to do the same, that we'd help others follow Jesus as well. You know, sometimes I think what can happen for us when we start to think about our own relationship with Jesus and we think about, okay, I, I want to be faithful in following Christ is we can start to think that that's all on me. Like, I got this by myself and I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm going to do these things on my own because after all, it is your relationship with Jesus. He saved you and called you by name to be in relationship with him. But what we see throughout Scripture and what we're going to see in our text today is that that's not God's design for you, for you to try to follow Christ on your own. It's not Jesus' best for you. It's not what he intends for you when he calls you to follow him. Now listen, no one can follow Jesus for you. It is your relationship with Christ, but you are also never meant to follow Jesus alone. And so that creates a bit of a tension that we need to live in as followers of Christ. Over the last few weeks, we've said that in order for us to be disciples who make disciples, we have to take ownership over our own discipleship and responsibility for the discipling of others. And that's that tension that we need to hold as we seek to walk that out in community with one another. And so to help us with that, we've, we've put together this simple structure that I want to keep putting before you so that we can keep thinking about what it looks like for us to be disciples who make disciples. And so we're going to keep talking through this. And at the, in the middle of that is your own communion with God, your own relationship with Jesus, which we're going to preach on in, in two weeks. And these next two circles are really about community, these one to three small groups of relationships with one to three people, and then community groups. And last week we preached on the gathering with the church. And so today we're going to begin, over these next two weeks, answering the question about those next two circles there and answer this question. What is the role of community in our discipleship? What is the role of community in our discipling? In other words, why do we need each other to follow Jesus? Why do we need each other to follow Jesus? So what I want to do this morning is I want to open up to Romans 12. I want to spend time looking at this text, diving into it, seeking to understand it so that we might answer that question of what is the role of community in our discipling. And my hope is for all of us today and for next Sunday is that no matter where you're at in life right now, no matter where you're at on your own spiritual journey, that God will use this time in his word to do two different things. First off, to, not help, to help you not only believe that community is important in your relationship with Jesus, but you'll actually be called and compelled to pursue it and see it as essential to the beginning and continuing of your relationship with Christ. So with that, let's dive into Romans 12 this morning, and may God help us to be disciples who make disciples. Now these first two verses in Romans 12, some of you may have heard them before if you've been around the church for a while, and they're often disconnected from their context. 
We may, you maybe even have memorized them before, and if, you, if you've never heard them, that's totally fine. You don't have to know this, because what I want to do this morning is I want to make sure we understand the context of what Paul's talking about here, which means we have to know what came before and what comes after this in the book of Romans, or we're going to miss his point. And so here's kind of an outline statement for us this morning. The life of a disciple is to be lived in community. The life of a disciple is to be lived in community, and that's really going to serve as both of our main two points this morning, the life of a disciple and lived in community. Verse 3 is going to end up being kind of a hinge verse for us. So let's dive into the first section here, this first point, the life of a disciple. We see this in verses 1 and 2. Look at verse 1 again. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul begins this by making this strong statement, saying, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. And an appeal is not some like, I'm suggesting this to you. It's not a minor request. This is a strong exhortation that he intends for us to obey. And it's a strong exhortation that he intends for us to obey because of what this exhortation flows from and out of. See, Where we see here, we have this word, therefore, and this is helping us again realize how important context is. It's a quick side note, just for your own studying of Scripture. Anytime you see the word, therefore, in the Bible, that's a clue for us to be thinking, okay, he's building off of something. What he said right before this is important for me to understand what he's about to say. Or, if it's really helpful, you can think, every time you see, therefore, ask yourself, what is it, therefore? What is Paul wanting me to understand? What is the writer of Scripture wanting me to understand here? So, what is this, therefore, referring to? Is it the immediate preceding text, which Edward read for us this morning, or is it more than that? In this case, the therefore here is all of Romans 1 through 11. Paul's saying, I've made this whole argument in Romans 1 through 11, and because of that now, I want you to do something in light of that. Romans 12.1 really is kind of the hinge verse of the whole book of Romans. And, and we dive into that, and we see that what he's calling us to, what he's trying to appeal to us to, is the mercies of God, that we would seek to do these things by the mercies of God. Now, what is the mercies of God? It's Paul's shorthand for the good news of the gospel. That Jesus came to us to die in our place and rose again from the grave so that you can have a relationship with Christ and be reconciled to God. And it's in Romans 1 through 11 that that Paul writes this kind of epic display and picture of what the gospel is, of our lostness and our brokenness and our need for redemption and our need for rescue. And he paints this wonderful picture of the mercy of God given to desperate rebels in need of that rescue. In other words, you and me. So what Paul's saying is, in light of all of Romans 1 through 11, in light of everything that I've said about the mercies of God given to you in Christ, I appeal to you, I exhort all of you who have been saved from your sin, who've placed all of your faith in Christ, whose lives have been transformed to do what? To present your bodies as living sacrifice to God. Now we need to understand something here that he's referring to or trying to tie in some elements of the Old Testament here. See, in the Old Testament, God's people were called and commanded to offer sacrifices regularly. And they were to do that as an act of worship and as repentance for sin. But these sacrifices that were offered all the time throughout the year had to be done over and over and over again. It was a wearying task for God's people to do, but it had a point. 
It was meant to point to the need for a greater sacrifice, a more perfect sacrifice, a more sufficient sacrifice, a once-for-all sacrifice. And this once-for-all sacrifice was fulfilled by and through Jesus. See, Jesus went to a cross. He was nailed to a cross by Roman authorities, put up on false charges by Jewish religious leaders. And as he died on that cross, it just wasn't about that. And the reality is, for Jesus, he didn't actually do anything wrong. It was all false accusation. But on the cross, when Jesus died, it wasn't just that he died a physical death. God, in his holiness and his perfection, poured out his righteous wrath on Christ. So that as Jesus died on the cross, he died in your place as a substitute for you. That the sacrifice for your sin was made in Christ. That it's in him and through him that you can be reconciled to God. So now, what that means for you and what it means for me is that instead of offering sacrifice for sin in your life and having to do that over and over and over again, Christ has accomplished that for you. It's finished in Jesus. Now, because you've been set free, you can offer your life to God in worship. You can come before Him and praise Him and glorify Him for what He's done for you in Christ. See, when Paul says present your bodies, he isn't just talking about your physical body, though it certainly includes that. We often sin physically. But when he says present your bodies as a living sacrifice, he's talking about presenting the whole of who you are. Your your body and soul, your mind and heart, everything, the entirety of who you are as a human being, that you would present yourself to God as a living sacrifice, that you would come before him and seek to walk in the ways that God has called you to walk, to live in the ways that he's called you to live, not in order to be accepted by God, but because you've already been accepted by him in and through Jesus. Why is that the case? Why does Paul say that we should be presenting ourselves in this way and that it's wholly acceptable to God? Well, it's because all that we think and all that we say and all that we do, it reflects the reality of our heart. It reflects the reality of our life and where we are oriented and focused in our lives. But when, by grace, Jesus invades your life, when, when Jesus calls you to himself, when he rescues you from sin and death, it changes everything about you and for you. God removes a heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh that now, instead of being oriented only towards yourself, is oriented towards God. That doesn't mean that we're not going to struggle along the way. We still are tempted to sin and we do sin, but we are now, by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit within us, are able to say no to sin. God reorients your heart. He reorients your life. So now what that means is you can actually offer your life to God. You can offer your life to God as a living sacrifice because you want to praise Him. You want to worship with Him with how you live. It's a response to the life you've been given in Christ. It's a response to the grace that you've been given and is now changing you. Paul says the result of that is spiritual worship. Not just this kind of outward worship where we're just going through the motions trying to check boxes off with our outward behavior, but, but spiritual worship that flows from a, the place of your heart and the depths of who you are as a person. See, God isn't interested in you just checking boxes off. He isn't interested in your religious acts and duties. He wants you and all of you. He wants your heart oriented towards him. He wants to be in relationship with you. So what Paul's doing here is he's laying out a lifestyle of following Jesus. 
a lifestyle of following Jesus, he's calling you to be a disciple and to live as a disciple. That when God saves you, he intends for you to follow him. When Jesus saves you, he intends for you to walk in obedience to him and to actually look more and more like him as you set your gaze on him. But we all struggle. We struggle with sin. We falter and fail along the way. We don't always worship God with how we live, with our whole selves. And all of us still live in a fallen world. The world that we said last week is preaching a different message to you that's communicating something different to you, different from the good news of the gospel. So to help us live that out, to live out verse 1, Paul gives us further instruction in verse 2. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul knows that culture preaches a competing message. That the world around us is preaching a competing message of this is where life is found. This is where freedom is found. This is where hope is found. This is where joy is found. Maybe it's in saying if you can just get more of these kinds of things, if you can look like this kind of person, whatever's on your social media account, whether it's an advertisement or your friends and what they're doing and figuring out, man, if I could just have that, then everything would be okay for me. Or that two-dimensional image on a screen that offers you some sense of happiness in the moment. And Paul knows that, and the reality is that hasn't changed for us. We, we see that then, we see that now in our own lives. And so what he's doing here in verse 2 is he's calling that out. He's calling it out, and he's calling you to be proactive then in your pursuit of Jesus. To be proactive in your pursuit of following Christ. He says, don't be conformed to the ways of the world. To be conformed has the sense of kind of going along with the behavior of of the world you find yourself in. And I think at a, at a kind of innocuous level, we get that, right? Like you've probably recognized that when you start to spend a lot of time with other people, that you start to say some of the same things that they say, that you pick up some of their idiosyncrasies, that the phrases you've never said before you start saying now. Like guys, if you hang around a, a person that says bro a lot, you all of a sudden find yourself saying bro. Like I never said that before. Why am I saying that now? Now, it's easy for us to see that we start to get conformed to the environment we find ourselves in. Paul says, don't be conformed. Don't go along with the behavior of the world, but instead be transformed. And transformation is not about outward change. It's not about just looking different on the outside. Transformation is about the reality of your heart being transformed. That you are setting your gaze on Christ, and as you look to Christ, you're becoming more and more like Christ. You're seeing something different take place within you. Then it begins when you place your faith in Jesus. Transformation isn't possible unless you know Christ. And this transformation happens, Paul says, by the renewal of your mind. This renewing of your mind, it's not about gaining more knowledge just for knowledge's sake. It's a lifelong process of seeing your thinking and therefore your living change because you're setting your gaze on Jesus. That as you focus in on Christ, you are given the mind of Christ. You're able to think like Christ and live like Christ. Your brain, your mind, your heart, your soul is being purged of the things of the world to be purified, to follow after your king, to take your cues from him. See, instead of thinking like the world, we've been given this mind, so now we're able to live and follow 
God in obedience and worship to Him. And how do we do this? How do we have our minds renewed? Well, God's given us His Word. If you want to know what God says to you, He's given you His living and active Word, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by men, so that you can know what it means to know Him and follow Him. He's given us His Holy Spirit. If you have a relationship with Jesus, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. He's filled you and is filling you so that you might be able to say no to sin and yes to God so that you might discern what it is that God is calling you to do. He's filled you with His Spirit and He's given you His people. A bunch of Spirit-filled people. So we're going to talk about more in a moment. See, when we actually believe that this is God's Word that interprets our life and He's given us His Spirit to help us to understand it, then when we read God's Word, it interprets our life and it interprets our lifestyle. And so we're confronted when we read this to recognize, God, this isn't a book of suggestions for me. This is life for me. This is sweeter than honey to my soul. This is richer than gold. Any amount of money or possessions I could possibly have because in this, you give me direction. In this, you show me who you are. In this, you show me who I am. And when I recognize that who I am isn't measuring up to what you call me to, then I can walk in repentance again. And I can confess my sin before you and I can walk in faith believing the good news of the gospel again that I have been made new in Christ and God, you are making me new in Christ. I'm not captive to my sin anymore. I'm not who I used to be anymore. So now I can walk in obedience to you and worship to you, giving myself fully to you. It's in and through the Word of God given to us by the Holy Spirit that we're able to understand it by the Spirit, that our minds are renewed, that we can actually see that Jesus is better and actually believe that to be true. And what happens when your mind is renewed? He says you're able to discern God's will. I mean, who doesn't want to know God's will for their life? We hear, I hear that often. Man, I'm just, God, I want to know what God's will for my life is. I want to know what God's will for my life is. I want to know what God wants me to do. How God wants me to live. What Paul's saying is when your mind is renewed, when you're seeking to see it transformed and follow Christ, you can actually know the will of God. You can know his good and acceptable and perfect will And here's the deal with the will of God. It's not saying God's going to tell you every little detail of if you should turn right or turn left, if you should live here or live there, if you should take this job or that job. When we understand the will of God, what we're asking in that is, God, what is most glorifying to you? Where where and how will you get the most glory in my life with how I live? with how I'm using my resources, with how I'm stewarding my relationships. God, show me that. Make your word alive to me so that I might see and understand and be attentive to your spirit to know what is most glorifying to you. I think that helps us to see that in our own life, to live that out and help one another as well. See, what Paul is laying out here for us is the amazing reality that the believer the person who has placed all of their hope and all of their faith in the person and work of Christ, who is seeking to follow Jesus and see their life transformed to be more like Christ, is now no longer a rebel, but is a saint set apart who God is still at work in to make you more and more like Jesus. This is what it means to live as a disciple. This ongoing reality of repentance and faith that when we stray away from the ways and will of God, we can confess that to him, repent, and turn again to follow Christ. It's rooted in the mercy of God. It's rooted in the good news of the gospel. Now these are pretty epic verses, these two verses. But the book of Romans doesn't stop there. Paul keeps on talking. He keeps 
laying something out for us. And what he lays out for us is what the life of a disciple should look like. The life of a disciple, what it should look like, someone who has been and is being transformed by the gospel. And where Paul goes next in Romans 12 is to our community. But he goes there by way of an important detour to our humility. Look at verse 3. Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself or herself more highly than he or she ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. We know that this verse connects with the previous verses, why? It says four, right? There's that clue again for us. It's four. Four, making another argument based off of something that I've just said. Four, and why is he saying this? What does he mean to communicate to us in verse three? I mean, if we think about this, he's calling us to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Don't be puffed up. Don't be prideful. Don't be arrogant. Now, why is he saying this right here? Well, I think it makes sense to us if we stop and, and take a moment to, to process through it, is that, man, we live in an individualistic world. And that's not just like a 2020 thing. That's part of the root of our sin, is that we've thought all along that we can do things on our own. That we can go our own way. We don't need anybody to tell us. We don't need anybody to direct us. We can do this. So, what can happen is, we can read verses 1 and 2, that tell us to do something, to offer ourselves to God, to not be conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewal of our minds, we can be like, yes, I got this. I can do this by myself, me and Jesus. I can live this out on my own. We can take on this I got this mentality of just being an individual and thinking you're sufficient in and of yourself to do these things. So Paul, by the leading of the Spirit, I think in this moment, gently rebukes God's people. He says, I want you to think sober-mindedly about yourself according to the measure of faith given to you by God. He's saying to you, effectively, remember who you were. You were lost. You were, you were blind to the things of God. You were dead in your sin, unable, unwilling to turn and walk in faith towards God. But God, who is rich in mercy, came to you. And He rescued you. He gave you eyes to see your need and gifted you with faith to fall fully onto Jesus, realizing there's nothing apart from Christ that you need in order to be reconciled for God. And that's true for all of us. This levels the playing field for everyone. No one is brought into relationship with God on their own, by their own willpower. You are in Christ, if you are in Christ, by grace. Not because you have a great intellect. Not because you thought logically about all of these things. You didn't figure it out on your own then, Paul's saying, so why in the world would you think that you can figure out it out on your own now? And with that call of a life of a disciple, this hinge of humility, he then drives home the point that the life of a disciple, this ongoing life of faith and repentance is laid out in verses 1 and 2, is to be lived in community. It's to be lived with and around God's people, which is what he communicates to us in verses 4 and 5. He says this, For, as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Again, there's a clue for us here. He says, For, so he's connecting what he's about to say with what he's just said. And what Paul begins to lay out here is the marks of a, a Christ-focused community where Jesus is king. And how does he do that? He says 
and gives one of the most helpful illustrations and analogies in the scriptures. He says we're like a physical body. There's a bunch of different parts that make up our body, and they all have different functions to them, and that's not hard for us to understand. You can look at your body right now and recognize that. Your fingers and hands do something different than your shoulder does. Your eyes do something different than your ears do. Your mouth does something different than your toes do. But all those things work together to make you who you are as a physical person. Paul's saying that's true for us as God's people. We all have different functions. We all have different parts to play, but we are needed in relationship to one another. So we, the church, are many individuals, but we are one in Christ. And I love what he says here. Individually, you belong to one another. You are an individual. Jesus has saved you, but you belong to other people. He's laying out that tension that we live as followers of Jesus. We are individuals, but we're placed into community. What these few verses lay out for us at the beginning of Romans 12 is the reality that you are saved into something that is interdependent. Interdependent. Because it's interdependent, it confronts two errors as it relates to our discipling and our discipleship. And here are the two errors for us that we can be thinking about in our following of Jesus. One is that it's all on you. That you can think, okay, this is my relationship with Christ. That's right, God saved me. And so I'm going to do this all by myself. I'm going to do this all on my own. I just need to take total control of this, and that's it. Or, I think sometimes what we can do is we can overcorrect from individualism and put everything on the community. And think, okay, you know what? Yeah, it's all about community. So let me put my discipling and my discipleship just on the community. That they're going to live your relationship with Jesus for you. No, it's an interdependent relationship that requires both unity and diversity, that we are together even though we are different from one another. And that's why he lists off what he does in verses 6 through 8. Look at the beginning of verse 6. He says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Use those gifts that God's given to you. For what? Use them to help each other live out the reality of verses 1 and 2. To live out your calling in life as a disciple, Paul is painting a picture of mutual discipling. That that we need each other in our lives in order for us to faithfully follow Christ. To help each other actually become more and more like Jesus. And so he gives these examples of gifts being used for the sake of the whole community. Now the point of this list is not to get into a debate about what prophecy is. If you want to talk about that later, we can talk about that later. But I don't think that's Paul's point here, is saying, well, this is what this gift exactly means, and this is what the gift of generosity means, and this is what the gift of faith means. No, his point is, everybody has something to give to the community. Everybody has something to offer for the sake of discipling one another and for the health of the community. And Paul wrote that a long time ago, but it's still true today. That if you are a follower of Jesus, God has gifted you in such a way that you have something to bring to help your brothers and sisters grow. We cannot be many self-sovereign silos of discipleship where we're kind of around one another, but we actually don't do anything to help each other grow in Christ. No, the reality of your life with Jesus and in Jesus is that he has saved you, but he's still at work in you, which means, as Ed Welch talks about in his book, Side by Side, hopefully some of you have been reading that, you are simultaneously both needy and needed. You are needy and needed. You're needy 
which is a humbling thing to confess, which he brings up the sense of humility in verse 3. You are needy because you aren't yet complete yet. You're needy because you haven't figured it all out yet. You're needy because you can't do this by yourself. Yet, at the very same time, you are also needed. There are people in this community that need you and how you're gifted and what God's doing in your life to help you and help them follow Jesus. Why do we need each other? Because the reality is you cannot follow Jesus alone. You cannot follow him alone. See, we not only belong to one another, we've been placed in each other's lives so that we can be faithful disciples, so that we can faithfully follow Jesus. We can be placed in each other's lives so that we can help each other fight for joy, so we can walk and live lives of repentance and faith in a world that's set against him. Mark Dever, again in his book, Discipling, which also hopefully you've had a chance to read and, and finish and wrap up, he says this, the Christian life is personal but not private. It's that tension again. Your, your, your relationship with Jesus is personal. He saved you but it's not private. It's not meant for you just to keep to yourself, but to be lived out with one another. And this is most clearly manifested in the community that is called the local church. A group of people who have covenanted together to be about Jesus and for one another. So let me ask you, is that how you view community and the church? Is that how you view this community and this church, that you are needy and needed here in order for you to faithfully follow Christ? As we close, I just want to ask us the question or walk through, what does this actually look like in our life and in our church together? The church is made up of the redeemed people of God, and we looked about this last week, I think, Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews says this, knowing that we are God's redeemed people, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Gathering together, not neglecting meeting together, certainly includes gathering together on Sundays like we're doing right now. It's what we preached on last week, the significance in your discipleship of gathering under the preaching of God's word. And, And we can serve one another here as we do that. But we're only here for like an hour and a half, right, in a given week. So I believe that the way that you will most practically live out using your gifts, however God's gifted you, what he's infused into your heart and life to help others grow, will happen when we scatter as the church throughout the week in community, in smaller communities, in relational connections for the other 166 hours of the week. Now the chief way for us to accomplish this at Sojourn that we're setting before you and believe in is through the ministry of our community groups, where 10 or 15 Men and women gathered together on a regular basis, centered around the Word of God, around fellowshipping with one another, around prayer, so that as we do those things, we can be faithful and effective in mission and taking the gospel to those who don't yet know or have not yet believed, and in caring for one another, and in worshiping God in our whole life. Now, I know you may be thinking, well, hold on a second, community groups aren't in Scripture. Like, I can't find that anywhere in here. So, what's the deal with that? Well, I I know they're not in Scripture, but there's a lot of things that explicitly aren't in Scripture in word, but we see in practice. And so this is a mechanism for us to grow in our discipling, to grow in following Jesus that I think Jesus sets an example for us in as he hangs out with his 12 disciples, as he's spending life in 
community and relationship with them outside of the large gatherings and teachings of Jesus, that they're spending time together talking about what God is showing them and what they're, he's teaching them and spending time in relationship with one another. But here's what I need you to hear me in this. The goal for our church is not community groups. That's not the goal. It's not like, well, man, I hope we have a ton of community groups or we need a ton of people in community groups. No, the goal is real community, genuine, transformational community centered around God's word where you're helping each other follow Jesus. We just believe that community groups are a means for that to take place because I think we need structure in our lives. We, we need things to help us along the way. We need things to encourage us to actually pursue those things. I would love to have a church community where we actually don't need anything like a community group because we're so good at consistently getting together in smaller groups around God's word. But that's not where we're at right now. And I'm not saying that to indict you on anything. It's just the reality of life. So this provides some structure, provides a framework for you to say, oh, on Tuesdays I go and I get together with these people. On Wednesdays I gather around God's word with this group of people. And we are committed to one another to live these things out to live out the reality of Romans 12, 1 through 8. In community group, we bring our different gifts and we bring our different backgrounds, our different experiences of life. We come to both give and to receive. And that's both older and younger, that we should be willing to learn from people in different stages of life, recognizing that an 18-year-old has much to teach me about following Christ, as does a 50-year-old or a 60-year-old, and vice versa, all along that spectrum that we have to learn from one another. We need each other in order to do that. And community groups provide some of the diversity because oftentimes you're in a group of people that if you really stop to think about it, you wouldn't actually be in relationship with otherwise. I'm thinking when I show up, man, I have something to get from that person today. I need to learn from them today. And they need to learn from me as well. So our desire for you, if you aren't already, for the sake of your discipling and the discipling of one another, is to connect to a community group. Now I know that circumstances at times can affect that for you. Maybe your work schedule or other things that are going on in your life right now. I know that there could be seasons of suffering or other limitations that affect that for you. And so I get that, I understand that, and we want to help you figure out what community looks like for you when you find yourself in a a different season of life right now. But for most of us, it's just it's another opportunity that God's given to us to prioritize being with his people for our good and the good of others. I know some of you also may be thinking, well, man, I, I'm in a group right now or I've been in a group in the past where I don't feel like any of these things are taking place. Maybe you've experienced disappointment in community even here at Sojourn. Listen, I've experienced disappointment in community here at Sojourn and sometimes I've been the community group leader. That's a reality of the messiness of relationship, the messiness of us being in community with one another. But as I've been thinking about that for my own life, as I've been thinking about that for you and how we can be faithful to live this out using this mechanism of community groups with one another, I want to challenge you with something with that if you are skeptical or feel like it's not meeting an expectation for you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together writes this, the person who loves his or her dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. Man, that's a nice holy gut punch. That, that if your idea of community, your dream, that this is the way it should look and it should be perfect and my community isn't like that, he's saying you actually become a destroyer of the actual community God's given to you. 
that, that sometimes in your criticisms of your community, you're actually the culprit and part of the problem. So that gives you an opportunity to be humble and come before your brothers and sisters and say, I, I don't know how to do this, and I don't think you do either, but can we figure this out together? Can we pursue this together? Bonhoeffer goes on to say this Christian community is not an ideal which we must realize. It's rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. We roll up our sleeves and we dive into the mess and say, let's figure this out together. See, it's your participation as a contributor who has something to give to the others in the group that will actually enable you to live out Romans 12, 1 through 8, to live out this idea of community that's focused on Jesus and becoming like him. So let me ask you, are you pursuing community in this way? Are you seeking to make your community group better? Say, God, what do you want me to do to help connect with my brothers and sisters? What can I bring to the table to encourage them in Christ this week? Show up to be served, but don't just show up to be served. Show up to serve those around you using the gifts he's given you. Remember, you are both needy and needed. Listen, I encourage you in that too. Pray for your community group leader. They're trying to figure it out too. They're just trying to be faithful to point you towards Jesus. And if you have suggestions for your community group, go to them in humility. Say, brother or sister, I, I, I think we could do this a little bit differently. I think maybe this would be helpful for us as a community. That's happened in my community group. We made some shifts and changes recently because a few members in our community group just said, hey, can we, can we maybe shift this a little bit? I don't feel like we're spending as much time around the scriptures as we would like to. I love that because it's our community together. So be willing to come in humility to do that giving constructive feedback and saying, man, I'm in this together. Let's make this better. So let me implore you, let me implore you to commit to this group of imperfect, in-process people who are seeking to follow Jesus and helping you to do the same. Bonhoeffer again says, it's simply not to be taken for granted that the Christian has the privilege of living among other Christians. I mean, we live in this world, right, where we're just kind of a la carte our lives, and we're like, well, I don't like those people that much, so I'm going to grab some people over here. And we kind of pick and choose, and we build this plate of our life that's kind of a la carte choosings. And that will not serve you well as a follower of Jesus. God, in his providence, has placed you amongst this group of people. And maybe you're like, well, I don't like this group of people. Well, maybe God wants to teach you something in that. Maybe some of these people don't like you very much either. But man, God wants to use that in your life to make you more like Jesus. Because there are, there are brothers and sisters all around the world right now that would say, man, it's a glorious privilege to be in community. Because if I'm left to myself, I, I don't know if I'm going to make it another day. All they have is their community group or whatever they happen to call it. All they have are those relationships with 10 or 15 brothers and sisters. Let's not take that for granted, but see it as a gift of grace and press into it. Do you see it that way? And if you do, give thanks this morning. Praise God for that. Say, God, thank you that you've put this motley crew of people together to help me follow Jesus, to use me to help them follow Jesus too. Give thanks for that. If this is not how you see community in the life of this church, I just encourage you to ask God to show you areas in your own thinking that may be off, to repent where necessary, to ask him to help you figure out what this looks like for you in your life right now. Maybe there are things that you need to say no to in order to say yes to having people in your life and you be in their life to follow Jesus.
Now, I know one of the biggest struggles for us, for a lot of us in the life stage of our church, is having kids. That a lot of us have young children right now. And that can be really challenging when it comes to engaging in community. I mean, I love the organic growth of our church. <laughs> like, there's like six or seven babies that I think are, are going to be born between January and July this year. That's great. Some kids that are growing up to hear about Jesus. I love organically growing our church in that way. But, but don't let that be something that keeps you from genuine community. It creates a challenge. It creates a difficulty for you. But figure out, okay, God, how do I do this in my own life? Again, our community group had to make some changes. There are quite a few kids in our community group. And so we sat down and we said, okay, how can we do this? Because we need each other. We need to be pursuing Christ together. And so we changed things up a little bit. The women meet together on the first Wednesday of the month. The guys meet together on the second Wednesday of the month. All of us are meeting together on the third Wednesday of the month. And check this out. One of our other community groups in our church is babysitting our kids for us. On the fourth Wednesday of the month, we're going to alternate back, back and forth between guys and girls. And you know what? We're just trying it out. It may not work, but we're trying to figure it out. And here's another thing I love about our community group is some of us have kids, but not everybody. But those that don't have kids, we're like, yeah, let's do it. Whatever we can do to help make this work for everybody. Because we believe in trying to help one another do that. Maybe for you, you're like, man, my life's so crazy right now, the schedule and other things. Maybe consider starting a group that works for your family and your dynamics right now and inviting other people to that so that we can be pursuing this together. If you want to do that, come talk to me. Come talk to Edward. We want to see people engage in this way. Again, the goal of community groups is to remind you of who you are in Christ and to point you and call you to faithfully follow him. There are a lot of different ways to accomplish that. The last thing I want to mention as we wrap up our time this morning is just have the right expectations when you show up. If we go back to that circles again, when we have this, this, this idea of your discipleship relationship, we are not putting everything on community groups for your discipling. So don't show up on a Wednesday night or to a Tuesday night thinking that if everything doesn't happen in this two hours to help me follow Jesus more faithfully this week, then I'm just going to jettison the whole thing. That's another catalyst for you with those arrows going both ways to help you grow in your relationship with Jesus and help those around you grow in their relationship with Jesus too. Come in with right expectations. And church, we have to realize that the life of a disciple is a life of presenting the entirety of who you are, mind, body, and soul to Jesus, setting your gaze on him so that you are not conformed to this world but are transformed, seeing your mind look like and your life look like more and more like Christ's. So may we be a Romans 12 people who humbly realize that for, in order for us to be faithful disciples, we are both needy and needed and Let's rejoice in the gift of grace that it's in this community that we can see that realized. Amen. We're going to come forward now and take communion together. It's another opportunity for us to celebrate the grace of God given to us in Christ. As we come and we take communion, it's a meal that reminds us of what Jesus has accomplished for us and refreshes us in the depths of our souls. You know what? We do that here instead of the privacy of our own homes. Because we need to be reminded that we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. We need to be reminded that we have something good, a family of blood-bought brothers and sisters who have been and are being made new. So listen, if you are a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you forward this morning to take the bread and take the cup. But I want to do something different than what we normally do today. So as you're folding things up, listen to me for a second. I want you to come forward this morning and I want you to tear off a piece of bread. I want you to take a cup I want you to hear what Christ has done for you, spoken over you this morning, but I don't want you to eat and drink right away. Just go back to your seat with it. 
Keep the bread in your hand. Keep the cup in your hand. Pray. Repent. Confess. Give praise. Give thanks this morning. And once everybody has taken the elements, I'm going to come back up and I'm going to invite us to take them together. That we be reminded that we are eating at the same time. We are drinking at the same time because we are a family together in Christ. So come forward and do that today. And once you come forward, I'll I'll give further instructions. And listen, if you're not a follower of Jesus, as other people are coming up to take the elements, I want to just invite you to hang in your seat. And I want you to think about what I've said this morning about who Christ is and your need to follow him and the fact that there's a whole room full of people that want to help you know Christ and follow him. And so if you don't yet know Jesus, don't take communion this morning. Just talk to God. Take Christ this morning. Repent and believe the gospel today. And let somebody around you know that you want to know what it means to know Christ and follow him. For those of you that will come, after I pray, just come and grab the elements, head back to your seat. The band's going to come up and and begin to play, and then I'll come up and give, give instructions for us for when to take it. So let's pray together. Father God, we give you thanks for our time together this morning. We give you thanks, God, for this group of people that you have placed in our lives. God, I thank you for this group of people you've placed in my life to help me follow Jesus. God, I don't know where I would be right now if these brothers and sisters in your province were the people that I get to hang out with, that I get to spend time with, that are going to point me to Christ, that are going to rebuke me and correct me and encourage me along the way. So God, I pray that you'd help us to embrace the gift we have of one another. Help us to use the gifts you've given to each other. I pray even now as we walk out into this week that you'd help us to think, God, how have you wired me? How have you gifted me? And how am I using that to help my brothers and sisters live out verses 1 and 2 of Romans 12? God, I pray that you'd create that kind of community, a community that's only explainable because of the gospel, to pursue that with one another so that we can, by the mercy of God, seen and given to us by you, God, in the gospel, we can present all of who we are to you and worship and do the same with one another. God, we thank you for your grace. May you be glorified in our life together. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from Sojourn Fairfax. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at info at sojournfairfax.com. Go in peace.